Hi, this is Joe Bunazar, and, and with Impact Basketball, we're really excited to partner with Coaching You Live and Coach uh, Brendan Fair and Kevin Eastman with our certification program. We've put together an online program for player development, uh, over 17 hours of video that we feel will really change the way players are developed and, and be very, very helpful to coaches, trainers, parents all over the world. So really excited to partner with Coaching You Live. Uh, we've, we've put a special deal together with Coaching You Live to provide a discount code of Coaching You Live entered in our promo code, all lowercase, Coaching You Live at our website, impactbball.com, impactbball.com. If you click on Get Certified, and you can go right to the page to get signed up, enter that Coaching You Live code, and you will receive the discount. But really excited. It's a great program. I think that it's going to change the way players are developed. That's been our mission since we started uh, training players 18 years ago, and it continues to be our mission today. Now we're sharing this knowledge for the first time with coaches all over the world. Welcome to another edition of our Coaching You podcast with the coach, Brendan Sir, and one of our all-time friends and favorites, the legendary Spencer Wood. Spence, welcome, my friend. Thanks so much, Brendan. Really good to be speaking with you. Well, you know, Kevin Eastman and I, when we uh, started coaching you years ago, you were, when we started uh, the second year when we brought in outside speakers, you were uh, the first one we, we we brought in because, you know, along with Doc Rivers, not bad company, uh, because we just had heard you only months before at the University of Florida and frankly, the two of us at opposite end of the rooms when we got up at like 11 o'clock at night when we you finished, we turned to each other and said, wow, wow. And so, uh, you know, I've had a man crush on you since, my brother, and uh, and, <laughs> and well-deserved one. Uh, that's your thing that you're going to have to carry in life. But uh, tell the coaches and the business leaders that we have that listen to us, uh, every podcast, what you do as far as mental training, mental toughness training, high performance training, whatever the buzzwords are that we use now in the business, how would you describe what you do? Well, Brendan, probably the easiest way to understand what I do is by getting an understanding of the following, that when you trace the roots of athletic greatness, and I don't care whether it's a great individual performance or a phenomenal team performance, you will always find excellence in the same four areas mentally. And these four areas are commonly called the four C's of peak performance. They relate to an athlete's composure, his or her concentration, their confidence, and their commitment. And so what I do is, is train on a very basic level, is train drills and skills connected to each of these four keys of athletic performance. And I'll give you a, a couple of very good examples. You could take every athlete in the United States of America at the scholastic, the collegiate, and the professional level right now and divide them into two categories. One category is a really big, broad category where 90-plus percent of athletes reside. And the other category that I'm going to get to in just a few moments is a very small, very elite group of athletes. With this big, broad category um, that most athletes belong to, Following a mistake, this could be uh, any, any type of resiliency on the court, on the track, on the field, or in the pool, on the wrestling mat. Following a mistake or a piece of adversity, such as a, a turnover or a missed shot or a mistake, a skill mistake, or it could be a bad call or a no call from a referee, or it could be when the coach is literally reading that player the riot act in front of his or her teammates and in front of the crowd. 
following these conditions, most athletes have a little bit less confidence, less focus, and less poise on the back end of that mistake, which is, for most people, they'll shrug their shoulders and say, well, that's just fairly intuitive. Um, that just makes you human, right? Yes, but not for the very elite group of athletes. This elite group of athletes, they are the best clutch pressure performers on planet Earth. And following a key mistake, following a turnover, uh, following a bad call or no call from a referee, somehow they're able to, do you understand what I mean by the following term? They're able to steal their mind, meaning that somehow they're actually able to generate more poise and more focus and more confidence than they actually had before the mistake, so that that one mistake or that one situation that requires resiliency, it doesn't lead to another mistake. It doesn't lead to another bad play. These type of athletes are actually at their very best right after being at their very worst. Now, that's special. And if you could define, if you could look at the greatest pressure performers on planet Earth and say, give me one or two or three things that really defines them, that's one of those things, Brendan. And here's the really cool thing about that skill set, about that trait, that is actually as trainable and teachable as, as throwing a curveball in baseball um, or, or shooting a free throw in basketball. It does take time to develop and learn, but it's absolutely trainable and teachable. And that's one good example of the skill sets that I typically uh, teach to, to athletes when I work with teams and when I work with student athletic populations when I'm brought in by a particular university. You know, this I'm watching... Um we're now, you know, finishing the Western Conference uh, playoffs in the NBA. I'm watching the game last night, knowing I'm doing this with you this morning. And immediately during the, the game, at 10.30 at night, I am screaming at the television, trying to coach <laughs> the Houston Rockets. And my wife comes down and says, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? And I said, James Harden just made his 13th turnover. Freaking guy was runner-up for MVP. Spence, how does that happen? Well, the first thing, uh, how does it happen that you're yelling at the television screen? Brendan, that's with your 27 years of experience coaching in the this NBA. Okay? Too many years you, of you, coaching. You, you can't and turn then... that button off, okay? But I, I know that wasn't the real intention of your question. Um, <laughs> you know, how does that happen? It, it could be a number of things. And, and I'm, you know, I, I would never attempt to, especially not in front of a microphone on the phone or camera, uh, try and tear apart you know, an NBA All-Star because it's very easy for me well, to this, sit back. Don't things. worry about it. This is just you and I talking. <laughs> no one is listening to this. So it's just you and I having this conversation. And you're one of my coaches. You're one of my well, five <laughs> coaches in life. You've got that burden. <laughs> and, and so now it's just you and I talking. Probably no one will ever hear about this conversation. So go right ahead. Well, if you preface um, you know, my comments with that, then, then I can go ahead and, and speak to you. Yeah, right? please. Um, so, so if I were to make some bold assumptions about what is possibly sure. going on in the mind of Harden at that point in time, it, it could be a, a case of, of him knowing that the game largely resides on him. Um, that he is a fulcrum point for the entire game for the Rockets. And it's possible even at that level for a player on occasion to push a little bit, try too hard, um, which obviously can lead to an excessive amount of turnovers. It's very interesting how pressure works in the brain. And even yeah. athletes who perform at extremely high level, Brendan, on occasion they do succumb to pressure. And I'm not saying that was definitely the case uh, you know, for Harden last night. I wasn't in his brain. I wasn't his body. But, you know, we can make some assumptions based on, on what we saw. And it is a possibility 
that, as they say, pressure grows in the gaps between expectations and confidence. And when you have a very, very high internal set of expectations and when you have a tremendous amount of external expectations on you, uh, which is obviously the case um, for um, for Harden uh, with the Houston Rockets and, and trying to get them to the promised land, the gaps between confidence and expectations obviously lead to pressure. And the very interesting thing is when you've got a player of that caliber who is already a very confident athlete, most will say, well, no, he won't feel pressure because of his confidence. But I'll push back on that a little bit to say, listen, if expectations are growing to astronomical levels and they even surpass his confidence, in the, the mind of the athlete, the brain and body truly believes, you know what, there's a chance I may not meet these expectations. And so the athlete feels pressure. And whenever there's that perceived threat in the brain, Brendan, and this is really important, whenever an athlete feels a little bit of perceived threat, then there is a physiological response to that stress, meaning that uh, muscular tension levels rise, um, there's all types of things with the, the digestive system shutting down and, and elevated heart rate and so on. But at the end of the day, there is, on a very simple level, a couple of things that actually occur when you have a very, very big physiological response to stress. One is impaired decision-making, uh, and the other one is impaired fine motor skills coordination, basically meaning in simple terms, you can't perform skills at the same level that you're typically used to performing in practice when everything flows smoothly and it's effortless and it's easy. You know, and I'm not saying that that is exactly what occurred with Harden, but um, it's, it's entirely possible that uh, you know, he felt some pressure in that situation and it impaired decision-making. It makes perfect yeah. sense, Spence. That's what and, I saw. Uh, yeah. And what, what you know, uh, let me throw this question at you, Brendan. If you could look at one of the things that I mentioned uh, as being connected to turnovers, uh, what what aspect of basketball would you say are, is, is most uh, closely connected to, to turnovers? It's, it's got to be decision making, right? Oh, without a doubt. And and uh, you know. The focal point of the defense of Golden State is all on that superstar. And now he knows, uh, talks about that pressure that he's feeling. ESPN all day long, they're saying James Harden had 45 in game four. He's got to have a similar type performance. So they've also put huge pressure on him, his team, organization, and the city. And then Golden State's exerting their own pressure that they're putting on him in defending him. So all of that comes in, and this is a great competitor and a great player. And I, and that's the part, Spence, that, I, that I've been preaching for years, and that's why when you came into my life and Kevin's and others, coaches that you've helped, uh, immediately I feel as, you know, basketball coach, but it doesn't matter football, it doesn't matter on the sport, it's the most under-coached, uh, professionally, part of sport is the mental area that we, we, and I'm a world champion type of coach, are not qualified to teach. That's why I have to always reach out to you, my friend. Uh, thoughts on that, the role of a, someone like yourself with a team, a really good team at the college professional you know, level even. Right. Well, it, it still, you know, it raises eyebrows to hear that from a coach at your level because it's not just a, a soft label world championship coach. You are a world championship coach. You won back-to-back -back NBA titles with the Detroit Pistons, and obviously, you had some very, very, very mentally tough 
uh, athletes. If anyone's ever seen the 30 for 30 um, show on the on the Pistons um, and what you and Chuck Daly had done with the Pistons, they'll know that you had some very, very mentally tough uh, athletes. Um, yet not every athlete comes out of the womb like Isaiah Thomas. Not every athlete comes out of the womb like a Bill Lane Beer. And you're right. There isn't a lot of teaching that coaching as a whole has often talked about the importance of the mental part of the game and mental toughness, but there hasn't been a great deal of teaching in terms of the development of those traits. Yes. And I think it's for a couple of interesting reasons. I think one reason is most coaches kind of shrug their shoulders and say, look, it's very important, but what do we do? How do you actually train and teach poise under pressure? How do you actually train focus with the game on the line? How do you actually train confidence when an athlete's in a slump? And you need something, you know, especially coming out of that key timeout and the athletes are taking the floor. What do you say to the athlete above and beyond the superficial stuff like head up, you know, stay in it, um, focus? Mm -hmm. uh, how do you actually train and, and move on and all that, yeah. Exactly. How do you train and teach that stuff? So I, I think that, that sometimes for, for many coaches, even at a fairly high level, it's a question of, well, what exactly should we be doing? And, and before we're off this call, I would love to get into uh, a couple of those things. I think the other reason, Brendan, is that you've, you've, you've got many coaches who I think have, have really adopted this truth with a small t versus truth with a capital T. And what I mean by that is that many say that, hey, we'll just drill in practice a drill over and over and over again. We'll run this offensive set over and over and over again so that under pressure it becomes automatic. And I think that that truth with a small t, which means there's a partial truth to it, versus a truth with a capital T, meaning it's, you know, that's an absolute truth. I believe that that is truth of the small T versus truth with a capital T. I think that practice obviously breeds great consistency, and it does help under pressure. But I also believe you can never, ever truly mimic what it feels like to be standing on that free throw line with two ticks on the clock. If you make this free throw, you advance, you won an NBA championship, or you, your team stays alive in the NBA championships or your team goes to the NCAA tournament. If you miss it, you could go down as one of the, unfortunately, one of the biggest goats in the history of your program or your school. They'll remember it for a long, long while. You can't fully mimic what it feels like to be standing on the free throw line with that kind of pressure. In a similar manner, you can't fully mimic what it feels like to be James Harden and fighting for your, your life in the NBA playoffs in the Western Conference Finals with hopefully a shot at getting the Rockets back uh, to the NBA Finals, and obviously they haven't been there since the, the Akeem Olajuwon era. You can't mimic what it feels like to be James Harden in that situation. There has to be more that you can do. And obviously I'm biased when I say this, but that's where, hopefully, um, individuals like myself come in to play who have spent basically the best part of their entire career looking at this area, the three and a half pounds of electrical energy between the ears, the mind, and the role of the mind, and working on skills and drills that can actually help that athlete perform under pressure. Because I think that the, the trouble that we get into sometimes is, is we elevate great conversation about mental skills and mental toughness. And we, we throw out a, a few cliches that are motivational. But again, there isn't a great deal of actual teaching that's involved where there is actually a tangible uh, transfer, a palpable transfer of skills where the athlete can stick those skills in his or her back pocket and actually apply them to intensity to competition tomorrow night. And again, I'll give you a great example of that. I find very few programs 
I'm not trying to be overly critical. This is just the observation no. in, in doing this for the past 15 years. But very few programs that truly have a plan of action in place when it comes to their mental toughness traits. Um, I believe a plan really involves, on a very basic level, the answer to three questions. And please forgive me for oversimplifying here, but these three questions are just very, very basic. They are, where am I now? Where am I going? And how the heck do I get there? Mm. And when you think about it, those three questions, where am I now, where am I going, and how the heck do I get there, you can apply them to every aspect of your life. If you want to be a better painter, a better author, uh, a better physician, uh, a better athlete, asking yourself, where am I now in regards to an evaluation of your current skill sets, where am I going in terms of where you want to get to, and then an actual plan, an executable plan, and how the heck do I get there? You can apply those three questions. Now, let's get those three questions and turn them back to the mental part of the game. The question, where am I now, is so very rarely answered from a mental standpoint. Now, that question for most coaches and athletes is answered very, very well from a physical um, skill set standpoint, such as keeping good stats in terms of where your, uh, your field goal percentage is, your free throw percentage, your assist to turnover ratio percentage, you know, your rebounding knowing where you shoot very, very well, which spots on the floor are your sweet spots. We, we do a very, very good job of asking the first part of that plan, the first question, where am I now, in regards to those key stats. We also do a great job in regards to the athletic side of things. For an athlete to develop his or her speed, agility, quickness, and overall strength and power, cardiorespiratory conditioning, we do an amazing job of answering the first part of the plan, the first part of that question, where am I now. We keep stats on conditioning. We keep stats on strength, such as squat and bench and, and power movements, such as, as clean and jerk. We keep stats relative to agility scores, such as the 5105 and, and, uh, and, and quickness. We keep very, very good stats on the athletic portion of the game. But how many times have you actually seen a team or a coach keep very good metrics, of some baseline scores on the mental part of the game? You don't really see it a great deal. Yet that's critical because how can you ever effectively measure and monitor improvements, which is part of a true plan. Any true plan of action has that component, the ability to ask, where am I now, and come up with a plan of, of again, how do you get to those goals, but also to effectively measure and monitor improvements going forward. Well, that's also a part of what I do, to be able to work with the team and present them with this whole thing, this, this, this big umbrella called mental toughness, and actually break it down into to smaller, use a little bit of recursion, as they say, break it down into smaller, easy-to-manage components and get to measure the athlete's ability in those key areas. Now, if I'm a coach listening to that, I'm thinking, well, you know, how do you do that, and how do you keep it very objective? Because some of these measurements have to be subjective. Well, I always encourage coaches to be able to fill these out for their athletes and also encourage the athletes to be able to fill them out for themselves and then take the coaches' scores and the athlete scores um, in a meeting with the coach and the athlete and actually combine them to come up with a pretty good, solid sense of exactly where that athlete's at. And let me give you a couple of examples of some of the metrics that are measured. Okay. From on, a, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is that athlete's resiliency like? How well does that athlete actually bounce back from mistakes or errors? Or how well does that athlete bounce back from um, bad sportsmanship from an opponent, um, overly aggressive play from an opponent, a bad call from a no call from a referee? How does that athlete respond when their back's up against the wall on a scale of 1 to 10? 
looking at competitiveness on a scale of 1 to 10. What type of competitor is that athlete? And what I do with competitiveness is I break it down into two separate discrete scores. For example, I don't think you can ever label an athlete a true competitor until you see him or her compete against some of the best in the league or the best in the region or the state or even in the country and also see them how they compete against one of the worst teams in the league or one of the worst teams in the state or one of the worst teams in the country. Because there are some athletes that can bring their A game when the big dogs come to town, when the, when the ranked, state-ranked opponent or the nationally-ranked opponent comes to town, they're able to show up and show out and bring their A game. But some of those same athletes and some of those same teams play down to the level of their competition when a mediocre opponent comes to town. And they can't raise their A game. There isn't a sufficient level of motivation and energy because they don't feel like there's anything, quote-unquote, on the line in terms of that game. Well, in my estimation, the athlete's not a true competitor. You have to be able to measure that athlete and score that athlete on his or her ability to bring their A game when it counts the most, when the really big teams, the ranked teams come to town, but also see how they lace them up, how they compete when a mediocre team comes to town. And that should also be scored on that scale. And so what I've done, that's just three examples of 16 mm. different components I use. Wow in my mental toughness inventory, and that gives the, the coach and it gives the athlete, Brendan, the answer to that first question, where am I now? And from that, you can elevate a couple of strengths, you can discern a couple of strengths, and you can discern a couple of, of weaknesses that you hope to turn into areas of improvement. Now, this is absolutely critical. I believe, and I'm going to, please give me a chance to defend the following statement because it's going to sound a little controversial. I believe that championship teams have zero weaknesses. Now, that seems so unrealistic, but I ask you to give me a chance to defend it. Here's why I say that. I believe a weakness is something that an athlete hasn't been able to suppress their ego long enough to actually identify and get out in the open and put a plan in place to actually work it. You promote a weakness to an area of improvement the second you actually have the courage to suspend your ego and admit you're, you're less than perfect and actually... Uh, identify a couple of these, of these weaknesses. The second you do that, you elevate that weakness from a weakness to an area of improvement. Now, I believe championship teams, they just, they just have a bunch of areas of improvement, so they're actually working. Now, championship teams typically are very, very good in a lot of different areas, but they also have a bunch of areas of improvement. They have no weaknesses. They've identified everything they need to work on, and they are actively and aggressively pursuing that improvement. Again, then you've promoted a weakness to an area of improvement. So what we're looking at is this, this inventory, this mental toughness inventory that I use, is basically uh, taking the entire mental makeup of an athlete and being able to identify key strengths and key areas of improvement, hmm. if that makes I like sense. The way, I like the way it's put. What, here's, a, here's a question I have. Okay, uh, as a coach, a sports-specific coach, I know that the only way my team will get continuous improvement and development is through practice. Correct? Okay. Yeah, correct. Through and through a long period of practice. In other words, if I want to uh, improve a skill level, I don't go out, uh, watch a video, a movie, and then go out and practice at one time and say, you know, what? I'm working on it. Uh, yet, so many people will listen to a workshop of yours, which I've attended several times, and they're phenomenal, 
And then they stop. And then say, geez, our kids showed a little improvement, but then guess what? We stopped practicing. Uh, now, with some of your clients and universities, you have a year-long relationship, you know, you know, during the season, let's say. Uh, give me the benefits of that. And I think they're obvious, but just to tell the, our listeners the difference. Sure. And obviously there is, I understand as I'm giving you the difference, Brendan, there is a yeah. bias involved, obviously, because... This yeah, but I think it's a deserved one. I think it's a real deserved bias. I, and, and, I, and I appreciate yeah. that. And hopefully it's, it's shown for some of the programs that I've been yeah. fortunate enough uh, to work with. Um, you know, for example, there's in the ACC, the University of Maryland, and their National Championship Lacrosse program is a good example. Um, the University of Florida and many of their national championship teams and, and teams that haven't even won a national championship this past year but have been extremely competitive in the latter stages of the NCAA tournament. Of course, ongoing access to training this area means that it's, it's more than just a, um, you know, a one-time uh, exposure to these skills and drills, which can be useful, but as you said, not every coach then will continue to follow through on, on teaching the mental side of the game. Um, you know, not many coaches actually have a high comfort level, if we can be honest, Brendan, in teaching the mental part of the game. So, you know, I believe that's the reason why um, some coaches have a little bit of improvement and then run out of things to actually teach. The, the benefits, obviously, of, of having an ongoing relationship with a university where you're brought in perhaps once every month or once every six weeks to work with a particular team or to provide the entire student-athlete body with a workshop um, and another level and another stage of the mental part of the game in that workshop. The benefits, obviously, is that the improvements continue throughout the entire year. Um, but, but not every program, obviously, has the funds to be able to do that. I think that if you've got a coach who, is, who believes the mental part of the game and mental toughness is important enough to their team, will want to do what it takes for him or her to develop a sense of comfort in taking some of those skills and drills that I teach and putting it in their own language and developing a comfort level and being able to teach it. Because, again, I, I think that the, the coaches, for very obvious reasons, uh, want to uh, appear competent and comfortable and confident with the skills that they're teaching in front of their team. And the mental area is one of those areas that, in the grand schemes of, of, of all the different ways we train athletes, is relatively new. It's only about, give or take, about 30 to 40 years old where if you look at most other forms of, you know, whether it's skill development, obviously that's as old as the sport. Even the athletic side of things with strength and conditioning, um, the science is, is older than the mental part of the game. Yeah. Um, you know, programs were using uh, resistance training and weight training in the 60s and 70s really for the first time, and it took a little while for coaches to develop a level of competence as the field of exercise science continued to grow. Now it's mainstream. Now you look at every uh, every uh, college campus in the country that has an athletic program, and there will be at least one um, you know, uh, NSCA, CSCS guy, uh, or, or a guy with a degree, in ex a gal with a degree with exercise science, or an NA NASM, PES uh, certified individual um, that's working with um, those teams on that level. And if you take a Division One uh, campus, especially the larger schools, there'll be a dozen strength and condition individuals 
Well, the yeah. mental part of the game is is a again it's a little newer than that. And you know, even in the past 15 years that I've been doing what I've been doing, I've seen a huge shift and a huge change where more and more and more programs. Um, I mean, personally, I work with a little over 50 universities in a given year, and there and I'm not the only practitioner in the United States, obviously. So there has been a tremendous growth. Uh, because people see, many coaches see it as a new frontier, in a sense, and a way to get an edge uh, over their competition. Uh, so they're utilizing it more and more. But of course, you know, it's, I have a little bit of bias when I say this, but the, the, the more a school, you know, puts resources towards this key area, the more improvement they are going to see. And some coaches are, that I've met, um, it's not every coach, of course, but some coaches are very, very competent in this area, and all they need is, is just a, a refresher once or twice a year um, where I'll be brought into a university and I'll work with the coaching staff as opposed to the athletes and we'll go through a, a new set of six, seven, eight particular skills related to the mental part of the game or they'll choose a particular area of focus. It might be leadership or team chemistry. It might be poise under pressure. It might be confidence. It might be developing the bounce back mentality and we'll work on that skill set for an hour or two with some key insights as to how we pass these on to our athletes and, and ways in which we can take some of these skills and actually infuse them into a practice environment. Let me ask you this. Uh, you know, we talk uh, some quick hitters on a couple of topics that I had. Uh, we talk all the time about uh, players being in the zone. You know, we, we see, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, different Clay, – Clay Thompson during the year, 37 points in one quarter, you know, some ridiculous yeah. thing, you know. Uh, give me a, a, quick, a quick thing about your feeling about the zone, athletes that get into that, you know, state. Sure thing. Well, there's definitely a couple of things we see um, connected to that phenomenon. Here's the first thing we see. Um, an athlete's not doing a lot of quote-unquote thinking, meaning that – when that athlete is involved in that particular skill, and sometimes you see it in no-hitters in baseball, and you see it with, just as you mentioned, like Clay throwing in you know, 37 in the quarter, um, you see it where the athlete's not doing a tremendous amount of thinking. And I'm, I'm not suggesting they're not thinking about the game, and they're not analyzing what's a good shot versus a bad shot, and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that. But they're not actually thinking a whole lot about the mechanics of their skill. And whenever you get that, you have a much more automated response and much more of a flow experience. And I, I'm going to give you the, the wordy scientific explanation for that and then the simplified version, if that's okay, Brendan. Here, sure. The, the wordy scientific version of this is that whenever we're learning a skill where we're actually thinking about the skill from a mechanical standpoint, for example, if we're looking at shooting the basketball and we're thinking about bending the knees, aligning the elbow, getting your thumbs aligned in a T so that the guide hand doesn't interfere with the ball when it's released, and the follow-through. When we're learning that skill, or when we're struggling with that skill, most of the brain activity is in an area called the cerebral cortex. Now, when the brain is thinking its way through a skill, i.e. bend the knees, align the elbow, reams and reams and reams of research says that when that skill is in this part of the brain, it's not nearly as smooth and not nearly as consistent. When a skill is transferred to the hypothalamus section of the brain, where that skill now becomes smooth and automated, the athlete's not having to think and talk himself or herself through that skill. It just flows without any thought. The only thing they're thinking about is the decision-making on when to pull the trigger. <laughs> 
relative to the game situation. They're not actually thinking about the actual skill itself. Then that's going to be extremely smooth. And that's a great example of a, uh, of a flow experience. They say that if you ever want to ruin a, a pitcher um, or a, a hitter in baseball or softball who's literally been in the zone the past couple, three days, ask them to explain their hitting mechanics <laughs> to you. And that will, really, that will really screw them up, unfortunately. And there has been some great quotes in history through great hitters like, uh, like Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams that said that, hey, I was actually pulled out of one of the greatest hitting periods of my entire life by a reporter who wanted to talk nuts and bolts and specifics about the mechanics of my swing. And it got me thinking about my swing. So my next at-bat, I was thinking yeah. about my hip rotation and how I was rolling my, my wrists and how I was following through completely got me out of my rhythm. What happened here in scientific terms, something was smooth and a flow-like experience was being transferred from the hypothalamus in the brain to the cerebral cortex. Obviously, it's not something that an athlete wants to do. So when everything's flowing, Brendan, from a, uh, from a, a brain physiology standpoint, that's, that's exactly um, you know, what's occurring. Now, from a, uh, from, a, from a stress standpoint, there's been a lot of research on flow from guys like Seligman, um, who took a look at a flow experience and, and really found that a flow experience is not in the absence of stress. That's the biggest misconception. And under, there's also a misconception. There's a big difference between stress and anxiety. Anxiety is typically bad for sport. Stress, especially in the early levels, is actually helpful for sport and can bring you closer to a flow experience. And let me explain that if an athlete says, well, look, um, a flow experience would be if we go undefeated in the season, um, in the absence of stress, that's very, very difficult. For example, I could take a Division One college team and get them to go undefeated. You want to know how? I'll just ask their coach to scrub their entire schedule and ask them to go ahead and schedule a season only against 12-year-olds. We'll play 34 games non-conference against 12-year-olds. I'll guarantee you the team's going to go 34-0. I guarantee you. But how much stress was involved in those games? None at all. In fact, it was almost boredom for those athletes. Athletes need a positive amount of stress to be able to get a sufficient amount of energy and to peak their skills. They need a little bit of a fight-or-flight reaction, just a little bit. Now, the key is not too much, obviously, because once you go over that magic line in the sand that I typically call hype number for athletes, once they're over that, that level of emotional arousal that's above and beyond that which they can handle, then things start to go badly. But there needs to be at least a baseline level of stress. And they say that flow experiences, and here's where the research comes in, Brendan, they say that flow experiences occur when you have the perfect balance of stress and the ability for the athlete to handle stress. Does that make sense? Yes. If you threw it on a chart, and I'm a very visual person, forgive me, because we're on the phone, we can't do this on the chart, but if you threw it on a chart, and on one axis you had stress, and the other axis you had the ability to handle stress, the line would be at a 45-degree angle uh, to that axis. It would be the perfect balance between stress and the ability to handle stress. Whenever an athlete has that, they have a very, very good chance of having a flow experience. 
And I know you said you, you wanted to throw a, quick, a couple of quick hitters. Sorry, that that was not a quick hit answer. No, that was that. not. That was not. A, you know, that's the difference <laughs> between you guys from England and us. You know, different in Jersey. When we talk a quick hitter, we're talking ten seconds or less. No, that was. That, but that was phenomenal. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you know, I have the pleasure of talking to you several times a week, and uh, and so uh, you know, we have clinics and coaching sessions all the time, which is invaluable for me. But I know, uh, just like the first time Kevin and I got a chance to see you with Billy Donovan and, you know, Donnie Jones and Larry Shia and all these great coaches, Jay Wright, around the country, we got to see you at the University of Florida, you know, in a kind of a think tank type of session, and we learned so much. Um, but people that want to learn and want to get a, a good, healthy dose of my friend Spencer Wood – uh, talk about some of uh, the ways they can do that through, uh, A, with you coming to their area to do a one-day immersive session, uh, B, if they're a college coach uh, or athletic director, if they want to bring you to their school, or if they are a parent, we have, believe it or not, a lot of parents that listen to coaching you, um, and they want to get your DVD series, which I think is off the freaking charts. Uh, one of the best things ever put together, you know, on the four C's. Uh, how can they contact you and get a hold of you to do any and all of the above? Well, well, first of all, you know, I obviously warmly received some of those compliments, Brendan. Thank you for that. Um, I had initially created a DVD series, as you know, because I can't be at all places at all times. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, selfishly for me, in terms of the way that I train the mental part of the game, I wanted to put my methodology in the hands of more people. So created a series, um, obviously, with my company, Icebox Athlete. I wanted to create a series that I could brand uh, the edge, as in the mental toughness edge. And, and the DVD series comes in four parts. And the box set conveniently breaks the mental part of the game into simple, four simple categories, and those are the four C's that I mentioned at the very start of our conversation, that one of the DVDs is on composure, one of the DVDs is concentration, one of the DVDs uh, confidence, the other DVD commitment, and these four DVDs can be picked up directly online, actually. A, a coach or a parent or an athlete or a university can go to the website, which is obviously iceboxathlete.com, and uh, go to products, and for $129 and a few bucks in shipping, they will have a copy of the Edge uh, Mental Toughness DVD series in their hands in two to three business days. So on a very simple level, um, that's how they would do it. On a slightly deeper level, um, any university can obviously call um, our company, um, and the, uh, the the contact information is all over our website, but um, thank you for the Would ability you give to, the, to, give the to shamelessly, shamelessly yeah, no, plug uh, the, the, the company. Um, if they were to dial our company phone number, which is 215-538-1165, that will go through to um, our company headquarters. And there's a, two or three very helpful uh, staff members, um, whether that's John uh, or Jackie or Kathy, will be lo- delighted to take the call and tell you a lot more about how the workshops work for most universities. Um, it's affordable for most programs, and what typically happens is I'll fly in for uh, half a day, and um, whether the 
university wants an hour and a half or whether they want three or four hours, it's all the same price. And um, again, they can um, they can call the company headquarters and we can talk about these specific topics of interest uh, for them. Um, typically, those calls, if there's a, a high enough interest, will be passed on to me and I'll have a direct conversation with that coach or with that athletic director or with that SWA on that university campus and they can let me know the very specific areas they want to focus on based on their unique needs and the culture that they're trying to develop with their athletes on that particular campus. Um, so, yeah, on a pretty basic level, that's, that's the, the two easiest ways of, um, of, of getting hold of me and finding out a little bit more about what I do and getting hold of one of my programs. Well, you know, I, I've taken advantage of all of them, and, uh, and selfishly I've gotten – uh, as a continuous learner, as and my partner Kevin Eastman says, uh, coaching you, we are always on season. We're never off season, out of season. We're always on season, and that means to keep learning. And you, my friend, and I say that with great confidence, composure, concentration, and commitment, <laughs> that you uh, have taught me and given me so much more than I have even come close to giving you. So thank you for that. Thank you for what you've done for coaches and athletes everywhere. Uh, when we were in, you know, mini crisis at UCF years ago, Donnie Jones, our great head coach, uh, had you come several times to talk to our team. And it really helped uh, when we were on our start to three straight 20-win seasons. And uh, you're invaluable. And, uh, you know, one of the greatest investments ever made uh, was uh, working with you, my friend. So the return on investment professionally for myself and our players was off the charts. Hey, I look forward to seeing you real soon. Uh, Thanks for sharing so much with our great coaches that love to learn. And uh, you're a great friend. Thanks, Spence. Brendan, I appreciate you allowing me to speak about my, my passion, and I hold you in equal high regard, my friend. So I appreciate your, the opportunity to speak about my passion for a few minutes with you. I've had a blast with you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Brendan. Take care.